The celebrated poet Langston Hughes boasts an impressive body of work. Between the 1920s and the 1960s, he penned some of the most famous verse in American literature, and has become something of an icon in the world of letters. One of his most famous and important poems, The Negro Speaks of Rivers, from his 1925 debut collection, The Weary Blues, is a meditation on the black experience, in which he lists the various societies and civilizations that those like him have witnessed and toiled over. I've known rivers, he begins, I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood and human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. He continues, I bathed in the Euphrates when dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans, and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. While reflecting solely on black history, Hughes makes a valid point that covers the broader scope of human history in general, that most societies and civilizations were born on the banks of great rivers. This is by no means coincidental, as these waterways proved vital for farming, trade, and all other hallmarks of early permanent settlement. Incidentally, it's one of these very rivers that opens today's episode, and not only is it the longest in Africa, but also the second longest in the entire world. Archaeological evidence unearthed on its banks suggests that people have lived along the Nile since at least the end of the Ice Age. These hunter-gatherer societies hunted big game and foraged for wild fruit, nuts, and seeds that grew bountifully in the surrounding fertile soil. Of course, it wasn't long before these early inhabitants decided to stay for good, and established roots that, history tells us, would one day become the mighty Egyptian civilization. For 3,000 years, this society flourished and influenced all those that would emerge in both North Africa and the Eastern Mediterranean. But as the eons wore on and one people gave way to another, the river became the guardian of many secrets and puzzles that are still being discovered and studied to this day. One of these mysteries is an ethnic enclave that has called the Nile, particularly the stretch on the Egyptian-Sudanese border, home for the last five centuries. Who exactly are the Magyarabs? Where did they come from? And how is their culture brought to the attention of the public at large? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. To trace the origins of this most fascinating ethnic enclave, you might be surprised to learn that we must first travel back, not just several centuries, but thousands of miles away to an unlikely place, the Ural Mountains, the natural boundary that separates European Russia with the vast wilds of Siberia. It's here, in around 800 BC, that a people known as the Magyars first broke away from their linguistically and culturally related neighbors. At this time, the area that they called home was decidedly warmer and milder than it is today, and was comprised of lush green valleys that could easily provide for themselves, their horses, and their livestock. But over time, these lands became increasingly drier, colder, and more arid, transforming into the tundra and steppes for which the region is known today. As this happened, the Magyars realized that they could no longer sustain themselves in such an environment, and, slowly but surely, they bid farewell to the Urals in favor of more hospitable places to the west, first along the northern Black Sea coast, then, ultimately, into eastern Europe. By the 7th and 8th centuries, Europe had more or less become accustomed to raids. With the fall of the Roman Empire in AD 476, various tribal confederations from throughout central and eastern Europe and beyond set about to claim the spoils of this fractured state. Some were Germanic, from the lands of present-day France and Germany. 
Others were Celtic, hailing from what's now Austria and the Czech Republic. Still more came from the east, arriving on horseback in hordes from the lands of Central Asia. Of this latter group, perhaps the most notorious were the Huns, a mixed bag of Mongolic, Turkic, and Iranic peoples who left nothing but trails of devastation in their wake. Such a terrifying impression these Huns left on the European mindset that, by the time the Magyars joined the raids from the east in the ninth century, they were mistakenly given the exonym Hungarians, or being of the Hunnish race. Of course, in reality, they weren't Huns, but of an entirely different group. Genetic evidence suggests an admixture of pure Eurasian ancestry which is fitting given that their place of origin is right on the cusp of two worlds-slash-continents. By 895, they'd conquered the Carpathian Basin, a stretch of land in southeastern Europe bordered by the Carpathian Mountains to the north and east, and the Transylvania Plateau to the east, and first subjugated, then intermingled with the various Celtic and Germanic peoples who were already there. By the year 1000, they'd established a kingdom of their own, which came to be known by the name the Europeans had given them, Hungary. Originally practicing a pagan faith that worshipped many gods, they converted to Christianity around this time, even going as far as to adopt the Latin language as the kingdom's official tongue, with Hungarian, or Magyar as they themselves refer to it, a secondary language used for everyday colloquial purposes. For five centuries, the Hungarian monarchy stood on its own, its centralized location making it ideal for establishing ties and interacting with other European powers. There were, naturally, the occasional tussles and skirmishes, particularly a series of Mongol raids in the 13th century. But, overall, they enjoyed a peaceful and prosperous existence in their new homeland. But this period came to an end in the early 16th century, when yet another threat loomed from the east, this one far greater and more powerful than any that had come before. That threat was the Ottoman Empire, which had slowly but surely been gaining control over the neighboring lands from its base of operations in Turkey since its foundation in 1299. You'll remember from the episodes on Suleiman the Magnificent that it was under his rule that the Ottomans were able to push into Hungary. His father and predecessor, Selim I, had led campaigns against them, managing to capture small fringe settlements and fortifications in which he brought the prisoners under Ottoman control. When Suleiman ascended to the throne in 1521, he picked up exactly where his father had left off, launching a campaign known as the Battle of Mohawks in 1526. It wasn't until 1541, however, that the Sultan was able to officially secure the country and consolidate it into his empire. But unlike other monarchies at the time, who would often slaughter their conquered enemies, the Ottomans, especially Suleiman, was just and wise. Knowing that his vanquished foes could be of use for their military skill and prowess, he brought many of the people he'd subjugated into his own armies. The Hungarians were no exception, ultimately comprising a whopping 20,000 to 22,000 troops that were stationed not just in their homeland, but also abroad in other Ottoman territorial possessions. Some converted to Islam out of respect for their new overlords, while others maintained their Christian and Jewish faiths. These elite Hungarian soldiers and janissaries were treated with a great deal of respect, and had access to the same rights as all other Ottoman subjects, so long as they pledged their allegiance to the Sultan. By now you're probably asking yourself, how do Egypt and the Nile play into this story? As you're about to find out, it's here that things truly get interesting. As early as 1517, under Selim I's reign, Hungarians had been drafted into the Ottoman army, after those selfsame settlements along the fringes of Hungary had been brought under Turkish influence in the first decade of the 16th century. In 1517, Ottoman forces led a successful campaign against Egypt, after years of struggling to subjugate this great North African power. In light of this victory, Selim granted his triumphant troops free reign to settle in this newly acquired territory. 
the first Hungarian to relocate to Egypt from Buda, now Budapest, the capital of Hungary at the time, was a general named Ibrahim el Magyar, literally Ibrahim the Hungarian. Choosing a place on the banks of the Nile in southern Egypt, today along the Egyptian-Sudanese border, he settled down and married a local Nubian woman and had one son with her, a boy named Ali. Ali himself would go on to marry a Nubian woman and have five sons with her, Jalal eddin Iksa, Musa, Mustafa, and Selami. Thus the first Magyarabs were born. These five sons are, according to tradition, the ancestors of all Magyarab people, the name being a portmanteau term combining Magyar with Ab, the latter being a Nubian word that simply means tribe. Throughout the 16th century, more and more Ottomans of Hungarian descent began settling in this region of North Africa. The result was a huge community of mixed-race white, black, and Arab people that quickly became absorbed into the greater Ottoman Egyptian society, while still maintaining their distinct identity. Some held on to their Christian or Jewish beliefs, while others converted to the local branch of Islam. Through it all, however, they emphatically referred to themselves as Hungarians. But as the years wore on, they became increasingly more isolated from their homeland, due to a combination of its great distance as well as the remoteness of their settlements along the Nile's fertile banks. As such, they were soon forgotten by their compatriots in Central Europe. It wouldn't be until the 20th century that they would be rediscovered, if you will, completely by accident, under the most unlikely of circumstances. It was 1935. As was the custom with many wealthy, if eccentric, European aristocrats at the time, Laszlo Almasi and his friend, the German diplomat and engineer-turned-archaeologist, Hans Joachim von der Esch, what a mouthful, had decided to undertake an expedition to northern Sudan in the hopes of unearthing ancient Egyptian, Nubian, or Kushite ruins in the desert. Sadly, this particular part of the venture proved to be in vain, but little did the duo suspect the magnificent cultural find they were about to make. While crossing the border into Egypt at Wadi Halfa, the pair encountered a local tribe, seemingly of Nubian descent. As with other peoples they'd met out in the vast seas of sand, the tribe was comprised of dark-skinned Africans. But upon hearing them speak, Almasi, himself Hungarian, noticed that the Nubian dialect they were speaking was strangely peppered with Hungarian words. When he approached them, inquiring about the curious nature of their language, they replied that they were from a nearby island in the middle of the Nile, which had come to be known as Magyarnarti, which translates to Island of the Hungarians in their dialect. Fired by this discovery, the two decided to stay among the Magyarabs for a little while, during which time they composed a lexicon of Magyarab words and chronicled their experiences living with the tribe. In the years since Almazi's and Vonda Esch's unexpected journey along the Egyptian-Sudanese border, a number of other European explorers, particularly those from Hungary, have made the trek across the desert or sailed up the Nile to see for themselves this most fascinating ethnic enclave. Research, especially in the fields of genetics and linguistics, continue to this day, and several Magyarabs have even made the decision to return to their ancestral homeland in Central Europe, where they've not only been welcomed with open arms, but also officially recognized by the Hungarian government as being true Hungarians. Not bad for a people who have been away from home for five centuries. The story of the Magyarabs is proof positive that there are still many enduring mysteries and fascinating discoveries yet to be made on this planet. It can be easy to forget in our global age, where everything's seemingly out in the open, or at our fingertips, but it's proof positive that the world's still worth exploring. The Magyarabs are just one of many ethnic and linguistic enclaves that are often hidden in plain sight, yet remain forgotten or overlooked by other, more trivial matters that are taking place in our world. One need only have an open mind and open eyes and know where to look. It promises to be a rewarding experience. Thanks for listening. This was a fun episode for me to make, as I'd never even heard of the Magyarab people until a week ago. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. 
Do you love history and find pleasure in seeking knowledge? If so, please consider pledging your support for my podcast by becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. From there, you'll be redirected to three monthly support plans that fit any budget. Listening and sharing also help me in big ways, so please do so wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join me again next week for another eye-opening episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off for now. See you next time. Thank you.